All right, crystal fountains and slimy cisterns. We're talking today about how God works to deliver us from the root sins that lead to some of the fruit sins we were talking about yesterday. Um, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer first. Father in heaven, we ask for your spirit to be here with us. Lord, you know I cannot do anything on my own, but you've promised to flow through any willing soul. And Lord, I'm willing. I just surrender myself to you and ask that you will speak to every heart here, every single person. You know what they need to hear, Lord. You know it will set them free from the chains that bind them. All of us, Lord, we're just on a journey to heaven, and there's so many ways that we need to grow. Please help this message to help each one of us understand how the gospel applies to our lives. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, today I'm going to be talking about how God's Word works to truly set us free. I want to start out by telling you about a Bible worker that I knew. I'd known her for years, the sunny, bright, happy girl who was always on fire for ministry. And then one day she called me and she said, can I talk to you, Mrs. Parker? And she just was on the verge of tears. And I said, well, yes, go ahead. What, what is it? And she said, I, I haven't been able to tell anybody about this. I don't even know how to talk about it. I'm so ashamed. But she said, I'm addicted to pornography and to masturbation. I, I do it compulsively. I don't even get pleasure out of it. And she was just sobbing by now and just saying, I don't know what to do here. I'm leading people to Christ. But my own heart isn't right with him. I'm bringing people to know him, but the gospel isn't working for me. How can I tell other people it works when it doesn't work for me? So I prayed with her and we started talking about what were the root issues that were leading to this. I explained to her that the sins that we commit are often the results of sins that have been committed against us or our sinful ways of relating. You can't just excuse your sin, but if we just try to deal with the fruit sins, it's like having a dandelion out there in the field, you know, you go out there and in the morning and wake up and say, oh look, they're dandelions, I better cut them off. So you go out with scissors and you cut all the dandelions in your lawn. This is not going to be very effective in fighting the fight against the dandelions, right? How many of you have ever weeded and tried to deal with a dandelion? They have this deep taproot that can go way down into the ground. And if you just pull on the leaves, they'll rip right off. But the root is still there. This is what she was doing. She would fall into sin, sexual sin, and she would feel terrible. And she would pray and agonize before God and confess. But when she got up from her knees, she still felt so dirty and defiled, so bad. And then, you know, as time went on, eventually she'd fall again and pray and just feel so discouraged. You can imagine the despair that she felt, right? All of us have struggled against sin in some ways and, and found ourselves coming up short in the battle once, and once, once again. Well, for her, I explained, here's what happens. In your fight against dandelions, it's not bad to go out there with the scissors and cut them off, right? If I told my daughter, get rid of all the dandelions in our yard, she might go out there with her little kitty scissors and cut them all off, and she'd have done a good thing, right? Because it's going to take a little while for the dandelion flower to come back. If we just leave them there, they'll all go to seed, and then there'll be thousands of dandelions where there were just five. But it's not enough, is it? Many people in their fight against addictions, they'll say, all right, I'm going to set up the computer in the living room where everybody can see it. I'm going to put on filters. I'm going to have an accountability partner. And those are great things to do. 
great things that stop the spread of evil so that it doesn't consume your whole life. But it's not enough, because if you don't get out the root, it's going to keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. God is in the business of taking out root sins, not just fruit sins. As I talked with this girl more, she explained that she had been sexually abused and that now the things she was doing were the same things that had been done to her when she was sexually abused. And suddenly the lights went on in my mind. I love it how the Lord just helps us to put the pieces together. You know, often in counseling, I'll hear this person and it's all over the place. I'm like, oh God, where do you even start? And then I'll start seeing, wait, there's a central sin issue that keeps surfacing in all the things they're saying. And for her, I said, is it possible that what's wrong here is that you have fallen for the lie that you are that kind of person. You are bad. And now you can't break free from it. And she just started sobbing. She said, yes, that's so true. This was what rang through her mind, you know. You're bad. You're dirty. This is the kind of girl you are. And so when she would get up from her knees after praying and confessing and repenting, she still felt dirty. And so she believed she was. And because of that unbelief, she was unable to claim God's forgiveness and walk in newness of life. That very feeling of shame that the devil was continually heaping on her, saying that you are bad. Remember we talked about the difference between guilt, guilt and shame yesterday? Shame was hounding her every step. Where before, before she would pray, she would feel guilt. Here's guilt saying, you've done something bad. Come back to me. But when she'd pray and confess, and she stood up from her knees, she still felt guilty. She thought she was. She thought, I'm still under the condemnation of God. He wants me to do more. And she'd work hard to try to make things right between her and God. Confess more, repent more, go out and do more ministry, feverishly trying to earn the favor of God. But that's legalism. We can never earn that. God has given it as a free gift. If we think that we have earned the, the gift of salvation, then we become proud and selfish, like the Pharisees. They thought they earned it, and it made pride just one more sin after another. So I said, you know, you've confessed your fruit sin, the sexual acts that you've been doing, but God wants you now to confess the root sin of unbelief. That when God said, I have forgiven you, if you confess and repent, I wash you whiter than snow, you've said, God says, but I feel. And I feel has weighed more to you than God says. Now you need to meditate on what God says. When God says, I have washed you whiter than snow. Believe it. Don't go on playing with those feelings. I said, write down the promise on your hand if you need to. Whiter than snow. Look at it every time you're tempted to believe that you're dirty. And you know, God broke the bondage of shame for her that day. Even though she was tempted different times after that, it was gone. She was no longer an addict. She was no longer in bondage. You see, the world will tell us, once an addict, always an addict. You're an alcoholic, you're always going to be an alcoholic. But God is in the business of setting the prisoners free. Temptation is not sin. Will you be tempted to go back to an escape if you're a person who is into escaping? Why, sure, you'll be tempted. But Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Without sin. God can set us free from sin. He doesn't set us free from temptation always. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. You know, some people, they overcome their addiction to cigarettes. They just wake up one morning and they poke the cigarette in their mouth and go, what was that? Other people, they battle with that addiction, that temptation all of their lives. But you see that that temptation to escape is what drives us to 
the, the cigarettes. Many people, when they are coming into the Adventist church, they stop smoking, they stop drinking, they're so excited, they've stopped doing these things, but they haven't stopped the root sins of going to things that make me feel better for escape instead of God. And soon they're addicted to movies, or music, or relationships, or ministry. There's so many things that we can go to instead of Christ for our sense of worth and lovability, but all of them are poisonous when Christ is not at the center. Jeremiah 2.13 is the basis of what I'm going to be talking about in this seminar. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. This is the cycle we talked about yesterday, remember? That when you forsake the fountain of living water, you hew out broken cisterns that can hold no water. You will never break out of that cycle without Christ. You will always be trapped unless you come to Christ. The world has a great array of books about codependency and love is a choice and boundaries, and they describe the problems very eloquently, very accurately. This is what a codependent is like. This is what an addict is like. This is what an alcoholic is like. They describe great, but they don't have a solution because they're looking for a solution on a horizontal plane. They're looking for something under the sun to solve the problem, and it never will because only Christ can set us free from sin. His blood is the only thing. If you break free from one addiction, you can go praise God, but you'll fall into another one unless you cling to Christ instead. These two root sins are the roots of all fruit sins. My people have committed two evils, only two sins that we have to overcome. The first one is forsaking God as the fountain of living water. When we forsake God, we are thirsty. And right away, we will hew out broken cisterns that can hold no water. Have you ever been really thirsty? I remember when we were hiking one time when I was in college, my sister and I, my poor sister who gets to feature in my presentations, <laughs> we were out for a hike in college with a bunch of friends. We climbed this beautiful mountain. It was wonderful, but somehow we all ran out of drinking water. And as we were coming down the mountain, we were getting thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. And finally, as we rounded bend, we found this beautiful crystal mountain stream, and we all raced into the water and thought the same thing. You know, how many deer were upstream peeing? <laughs> and my sister said, let's pray. So we prayed for the water, and we drank it. Nobody got sick, and wow, it was wonderful. When you're thirsty, you'll drink. <laughs> and, you know, we are naturally thirsty people. But when we hew out a broken cistern, it can hold no water. Broken cisterns, a cistern is a, a place that holds water. It's like a well, you know, just a, a place in the, in the Bible times, of course, you couldn't always just turn on your tap. So cisterns were a place that rainwater would be stored and you could go back and get water during a dry season. What happens for us when we are thirsty, when we're participating in that cycle of the broken cistern, what happens? This picture is it's like a desert. Imagine that you are out here in the desert and you're headed for that oasis. You know there's water there, but it's so far away. What if you knew there's some water right down under the surface? If I just dig down a little bit, I'll get some water. Nice, cool water. Wouldn't that be tempting? 
It's a long way to that oasis, and you're hot and tired and so desperately thirsty. Here's what happens in the carnal nature. We think, I'll just dig down really quick and get a little bit to drink. So we dig down in that sand, we get a drink of cool water. Oh, it tastes wonderful, but it's salt water. And as we drink that salt water, it makes us thirstier. And now, when I'm thirstier, and I've been here digging in the, the sand, I look up and the oasis seems even farther away, and I'm so thirsty. Let me just get a little bit more of a drink here. And if that doesn't work, you know, this one starts drying up, I can dig another one right over here. And we dig another little shallow grave for our lives. And we drink some water there too. But the longer we stay there, the, the farther away the oasis seems. What happens in our lives? When we, when we drink from the broken cisterns. Whenever we go to something else to satisfy our longings of our soul, our need for love and our need for worth, whenever we go to something else instead of Christ, it always will end up being a broken cistern. It will become an idol. Good things become idols. Most of the things that become sin problems for us are not problems in themselves. It's when they become the center of our lives. When, when that thing is on the throne of my heart instead of Christ, it is an idol. And whatever is on the throne of my heart instead of Christ, it's always really self. No matter how much people try to convince me, it's just I love my boyfriend so much. You don't understand love. If you did, you'd know why we're still together. Uh-huh. Not so. You love what your boyfriend does for you. And even if that boyfriend is beating them, that need for someone to make them feel worthwhile and loved is so strong that they will give their lives Rather than, that rather than sacrifice that broken cistern. God does not want us to live that way. If you don't know what your broken cistern is, think about it. Where do you turn? What is it that you go to instead of Christ? When you start feeling down, when you're depressed, or when you're anxious, these are the symptoms of unbelief. Anxiety is when you've tried to take care of it yourself, and depression is when you realize you can't take care of it yourself. And both of them come from self-reliance. Focus on self instead of focus on Christ. It really is as simple as focusing on Christ. When he is on the throne of your heart, when your de great desire is to be holy instead of to be happy, then God is able to do mighty things to deliver you. What is it that you find yourself turning to? When you are down, do you open your Bible? Do you open your cell phone? That'll tell you where your idols are. Here are some common broken cisterns that I find when I'm talking with people. Food, anorexia or bulimia, or just overeating. There are all kinds. I never managed to struggle with an eating disorder somehow. Anorexia didn't appeal to me because I really liked food, and bulimia didn't appeal to me because I didn't like throwing up. But for many people, it becomes a real war. It can even take their lives. It's not something pretty. <coughs> Excuse me. Food becomes an addiction, not because the food itself is the great thing, but because it's an escape, something that makes me feel better for a little while. Movies, another escape. Sex, another escape. Music, another escape. You see what I mean? They're all really things that we flee to instead of Christ. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. Thank you, dear. I'll get a drink. Isn't it wonderful having a sister? Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Popularity. This is a huge one. When, when we feel down, do we go hang out with people, go flirt with somebody, 
start feeling a little bit better about ourselves, wow, I feel good now. Maybe the opposite sex. You know, I've had people tell me, you know, I just, you know, I just get along with guys so much better than girls, you know, and of course these are girls that tell me this. I just really like to hang out with guys. I just never liked girls, you know. Well, if you, if you talk a little deeper with them, you find out um, often it's, you know, if they're friends with this person, if this person was not a guy and they happen to be a girl, all of a sudden that wonderful personality that they thought they were so attracted to would pale into being unimportant because it's not really the person that they like, it's the hormonal rush they get from being with a guy who talks to them and makes them feel good about themselves. Control, this one masquerades in so many different ways. We feel like we've got to have control of our environment. Maybe everything has to be neat and in order. Or maybe we want to have all of our friends do what we want when we want them to do it. It doesn't matter, but when we want to be in control, we have a God complex. Only God is in control. If I want to be in control all the time, it's because I'm not trusting God to be in control. And so often these problems do come from them, something like that. Shopping is another thing that's often an escape. Makes me feel better for a little while, but then later on I have the remorse. Isaiah um, often say in ministry, you're just being there for others, right? I'm just being there for somebody. But being there at all hours of the day and night could signify that what you're really trying to do is be God for somebody. You know, if nobody was there for you when you were growing up, you may feel this strong need to be there for somebody else because now I'll feel like I'm worth something. But that's trying to be God for somebody else. And it's ultimately sinful and selfish. I'm not saying that all ministry is a problem, just like all food is not a problem. It's when it becomes an idol, that it becomes our, our foundation for our sense of lovability or worth, that it becomes a problem. About what? Um, all of these, the broken cisterns, or? Mm -hmm. Music, how it's an escape? Or? Oh, popularity. Well, you know, I don't have too much time because I want to be able to get all the way through here. But here's what I see happens often, especially in school, when people are in high school or college. We measure on a worldly way of looking at things. Next um, seminar, I'm going to be talking about this more in focus, but the Bible calls this a fear of man. When people are big, God is small. When I feel the tremendous need to have relationships with other people, it is because my relationship with God is not deep enough. This is what drives people to obsessive need for marriage. So much so that when, someone, when their parents and their friends and everybody else is telling them, don't do this, don't marry this person, they're blind, they're deaf. It's hopeless, it's useless to try to reason with somebody like that because what they need is for God to satisfy them. They're so desperately thirsty that they're drinking from this filthy mud puddle and they don't care. The answer, the solution is bringing them to Christ because as Christ satisfies the thirst of their soul, all of a sudden they're like, what was I in this relationship for? But popularity is a huge thing because in our culture, we're taught that we have to value people according to their rank in popularity. So there are people above me 
that are too popular for me to really hang out with. They wouldn't want to be with me. There are people who are below me who are nerdy. They don't dress right. They're not popular. They say corny things that nobody laughs at. Those people are below me. I don't want to hang out with them. So the goal is to climb on top of as many people as possible. Get as high as you can on the popularity ladder. That was my great goal in life at one point. I thought if I could just be popular, I would be the happiest person in the world. But when I finally climbed up that ladder high enough that I was up there with the people I thought were the coolest in the world, I found out they were mean and nasty and they'd backbite and talk bad to each other. And it was so unsatisfying. I was devastated. I finally got my idol and it turned to dust in my fingers. But that's what God does in his love, isn't it? Because he has to make the idols crumble in order to make us turn back to himself. So we're going to talk about that, especially in the next seminar, how to overcome the fear of man. I want to move on now. God has made us like sponges. We are thirsty. As human beings, we're all thirsty. The Bible talks about two consistent things about us. We are, we are thirsty and we are foolish. That means that we need God, but we try to find other things that will satisfy us. We're sinful, and we don't want to recognize it. God has made us like sponges because we need to be satisfied by his wonderful love for us. God has given us this wonderful gift of being thirsty, and it doesn't feel wonderful at all if you've actually been there. Some of you that I've been talking to this weekend are suffering intense thirst. There's nothing pleasant about that intense thirst for love and for worth. But God has given it to us so that when he finally satisfies us, when we turn to him and say, I can't go to anyone else, please help me, God, I surrender to you, and we get that satisfying water of life, wow, we see the difference in our lives. We see what God can do in a human soul. We sinfully seek for satisfaction of our thirst, but God wants to satisfy us with himself. But many of us, We've grown up in the church, or we've been Christian for many years. We may even study the Bible every day and pray every day, and yet we're still so thirsty. What is wrong? Why are we like that? It's because many of us are like a sponge that's being dipped into that sink full of water, and it's coming up dry because it's inside of a Ziploc bag. You, drip that, you, you dip that sponge in the water, and you say, okay, I'm going to spend a whole hour and a half in devotions this morning. You wait, you wait, and you wait. You pull the sponge out, it's still stone dry. What's wrong? That Ziploc bag is keeping out the fountain of living water. What is the Ziploc bag that keeps your heart from absorbing the love of God? What is it that you turn to? I can't, I can't ask every one of you that question, but I think as you kneel down before the Lord and say, Lord, what is it that makes me unable to absorb your love, you'll find some illuminating things. Sometimes it's our demand that God makes us feel good. You see, in our culture, we want to be, to be feeling good all the time. If I don't feel God's love, I think I am not dwelling in God's love. But God doesn't want us just to feel his love. If we're dependent on that, what happens when the time of trouble comes? I felt so glorious every morning when I spent time with God. And then he has to allow me to go through a time of trouble such as no one has ever gone through since there was a nation, and God takes away that wonderful feeling, am I going to still follow him when the feeling isn't there? Who knows? God has got to build some character in me. He wants me to develop perseverance. My children are, 
are uh, waiting very impatiently right now for a butterfly to hatch out of its cocoon. My, my daughter found this caterpillar, and without mentioning it to me, she put it into a little box with a whole bunch of leaves and grass, and then she taped a stick sticking out over the edge of the box so that the caterpillar could go up there and fall asleep and make a cocoon. Go figure. And it happened. <laughs> I came out one morning and my kids were screaming, look, mommy, look, mommy, look, the caterpillar made a cocoon. And I said, hey, what? And then she told me the whole story and I said, look at that. There is a cocoon hanging on a stick. So we've got it in a jar. But what happens if we help that caterpillar out of the cocoon? What happens if we see the poor thing struggling? And we say, oh no, I gotta help it. And we, we rip the cocoon open, that butterfly will die because it has to struggle, it has to work to get out. In our first stage of our Christian walk, usually we have this elation of feeling, wow, God has just filled me with his spirit, I feel so wonderful, the grass is greener, the sky is bluer, I wanna sing all the time, I can't stop smiling. And then we hit that time when God says, okay, it's, let's kick it up, you've been working out with the, the three pound weights, now it's time to hang on the, to the 10 pound weights, let's work on these now. So we start working out with the 10 pound weights and then the 20 pound weights and we're like, God, the Christian walk isn't so much fun anymore, what happened? But it's because he sees something in us that's valuable and he wants to refine it. He wants us to become persevering Christians, not smooth sailing Christians. Sometimes the plastic bag that surrounds us is other people's sins against us. You know, God has ordained the family as such a great blessing. He wants parents, when they have a baby, to reflect to that baby his unconditional love. So this baby, before it knows there's a God in heaven to whom it needs to answer, a God who loves them and created them in his image, before the baby knows any of that consciously, they can see what love is because their parents are ministering to them. When I cry, someone picks me up and gives me love. Somebody changes my diaper. Somebody feeds me and burps me and all these wonderful things that the baby starts realizing somebody cares. Then when they get a little bit older, then they start wanting to do things they shouldn't do, then they get disciplined and they find out, oh, love has limits, love is just, it gives boundaries. If I slap somebody or pull their hair, I get spanked for it. That's also a reflection of God to that child. And God's ordained system is that parents will reflect God's love to their children as their children are growing up. So that when the child is old enough to understand God, they have this perfect image of what love is like. But unfortunately, there's a problem. Every parent since the beginning of time has been a sinner. So every child's image of God is warped, sometimes profoundly. Some of us have suffered abuse. Some of us have suffered all kinds of things that ought not to have happened to us. Those things were not God's will. Some people say, well, it was just God's will that I get in this accident. It was just God's will. No, I don't believe so. God's will was not that sin happened in the first place. God told Adam and Eve, don't do it. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And they went ahead and did it anyway. And he says, all right, that wasn't my will, but I'm still going to be able to accomplish my purpose. Because God's purpose is so much bigger than what we understand. God's purpose is to reveal his love to the universe, first of all. And second, to change those who are willing to behold his love into his image. So God is working on changing us into his image. And he can use even circumstances that weren't his will to change us into his image as long as we surrender them. All he needs is a surrendered heart and he can take whatever disaster is going on in your life and use it to change you into his image. And then he'll use you as a tool of ministry to help other people who are also struggling and change them into his image. And this is the glory of the gospel, that he takes 
wretched, miserable people who have made huge, sinful messes of their lives. And he says, are you willing to give it to me? And finally, when we go, okay, God, here, it's all such a mess, I can't do anything with it, and I frankly doubt that you can either. He says, ah, love is what I am. Grace is what I am. Miracle working is what I do. And then when he turns everything around, we go, wow, you are God, aren't you? And it's this glorious cycle of redemption when we go out and share with others what God is doing to us. It's not God's will that parents do terrible things to their children. It's not God's will that bad things happen. But God is able to use anything to accomplish his purpose of changing you into his image, as long as you surrender it to him. So what God does is when someone sins against us, it starts building that Ziploc bag around our hearts, saying, you've got to protect yourself. Nobody really loves you. Maybe you're not worth anything. And that Ziploc bag can get stronger and stronger. But then, when Jesus comes into our lives, he hands us the sword of the Spirit. And he says, all right, let's start working on that bag. And the sword of the Spirit is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts through that Ziploc bag. And God starts poking holes in the Ziploc bag, and suddenly the water of life begins satisfying your thirsty soul in ways you couldn't imagine. Like, wow, look at this. And then he pokes another hole, and you're like, wow, I didn't even realize I was thirsty in that area. As God keeps doing that, we keep being satisfied more and more, and we realize, wow, he is just wonderful. See, the sins that other people commit against us can become seed sins that grow into our own sins, like the girl that I talked to you about earlier. But they also can become things that draw us to Christ. You look at Mary Magdalene, who was probably a prostitute, who was certainly a woman of great sin. But the sins that she committed when she was cleansed by the blood of Jesus made her so grateful she clung to Jesus. The only person who believed Jesus when he said, I'm going to go and die, was Mary Magdalene. She said, he said he's going to die. The disciples were like, well, he said he's going to die, but that isn't going to happen because I know what's going to happen. He's going to set up this kingdom, and I hope I'm going to be at his right hand. So back to my dreams anyway. They were consumed with pride, with self. The Pharisees were not going to listen to Jesus because he didn't flatter their pride. Their seed sins had grown into fruit sins. They had these huge trees bearing all kinds of sin in their lives, but they weren't willing to confront those. But Mary Magdalene, who had sinned greatly, loved greatly because she had been forgiven greatly. And your sins, no matter what they are, will be forgiven greatly when you love greatly. When you recognize that tremendous love of God, that is what awakens love in your heart. Only by love is love awakened. If you don't love God yet, don't worry. Think about His love. And as you behold His love in the mountains around you, in the promises of the Bible, you'll go, wow, what wondrous love is this, oh my soul. And it will make you love Him back. So don't get discouraged if you don't feel love for God right now. Behold Him and you will be changed. And that's how the Ziploc bag gets cut to pieces and you get filled with God's grace and His love. <clears throat> One day I was just really battling. I was culportering. Here I was out doing God's work, but I felt so destitute inside. I didn't feel that God could love somebody like me. And I finally I hit this low point where I just was sobbing to God. I prayed and prayed and just fell down on the floor and said, God, I can't believe that you could possibly love somebody like me. And I said, if, if you really do love me, please, please, will you tell me that you love me? This is not the way I recommend that you study the Bible. And this is something that happened for somebody with 
very baby faith, okay? But I opened the Bible, and it fell open to this verse, Isaiah 43, 4. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. This is a God who knows what's going on in your heart. You realize the Bible says he knows you're sitting down and you're standing up. You're going out. You're coming in. He knows the words you're going to say before they even roll off your tongue. He knows the thoughts and the motives of your heart that even you don't know. This is a God who cares about every tiny detail of your life. Go out there and pick a blade of grass and just look at it and go, wow, what kind of God puts that much detail into a piece of grass that nobody will even notice? But that's what God is like. And he says, if you think I love the sparrows, think of how much I love you. You're worth so much more than a sparrow. When we meditate on God's love for us and how much we're worth, it satisfies the deepest parts of who we are. That love that he has for us is as vast as the universe. The universe that he rules over. We think of the ocean. Wow, that's big. You know, you can take a boat and go all the way out there in the ocean until you can't see land, and then you can just go a long time and still not see land. The most love you've ever felt for somebody is like a drop compared to that vast ocean of God's love for you. We cannot understand that kind of love. We can't possibly hope to grasp it. And trying to understand all of God's love for you is like trying to drink the ocean. You'll never be able to even get close. But God has called us to try. He wants us to drink in his love every day. This is what devotions are about. Um, there's another presentation I did on Audioverse that if you haven't listened to it, it's called Sword or Sawdust, about how to let the word of God really pierce that, that plastic bag around your heart. How to let the word come alive to you. But what God wants in a nutshell for our devotional time is not that we memorize a whole bunch of stuff, not that we get our Bible study put together, not that we understand the 2300 days finally. He wants us to spend that devotional time in meditating on his love for us and our worth in his sight and his majesty, what God is like. You see, when we understand what God is like, we don't feel like our problems are so big. You notice how much in the Bible there are all these, these psalms about praising God, oh Lord, you are holy, oh Lord, you are worthy, and all these things. I used to think that's great, but you know, it just seems boring to say holy, holy, holy all day long, right? But what happens when we pray, focusing on God's might and majesty and love, is that we start realizing just how big God is. And when we start focusing on just how big God is, then when we come out of our devotional time and we look at these little piddly problems that were so huge to us a little while ago, they go into perspective. We're like, wow, I was that stressed about that person being mad at me? How can I have cried for hours about this friend who doesn't care whether I live or die when the God of the universe is up there caring whether I sit down or stand up? when he knows everything that's going on in my life and he cares so intimately, then I can let go. I can trust him with it. I don't have to handle all those details. I don't have to be in control anymore because he's in control and he's much better at it than I am. God has created us in, these, in us these two longings, the longing to be loved and the longing to be worthwhile. How do we find out how loved we are and how worthwhile we are? We're going to talk about that a little bit later, but the love that God has for us and the worth that he has attached to us is all expressed in the cross. 
you know, people always talk about, well, you know, you've got to study the cross and the crucifixion and everything that Jesus went through for you. Well, you know what? They're right. If the cross doesn't mean anything to you, yeah, yeah, I know, Jesus died for my sins, you need to think more deeply about it. What Jesus went through, the pain, the worst pains that you've ever gone through in your life are nothing, nothing compared to everything that he went through. Think of what God goes through every day. How would you feel if you had to watch all of your friends being systematically raped and brutalized and tortured to death? What kind of day would that be for you? Every day is like that for God. He loves millions of people all over the world that are being tortured, that are suffering so intensely. We think we suffer and we get upset. Why does God not make things work out for me? He's not giving me what I wanted. I wanted to get this grant so I could go to college, so I could get these things I wanted. He didn't make this relationship work out. He didn't help this person get well. I'm still suffering in this area. But he feels all the pain of this whole world. God suffers so much more than we do. When we ask, God, why do I have to suffer so much? It's because we don't understand how much he's suffering. And God could have prevented all, all of it. He didn't have to suffer. See, we suffer because we sin. Because every one of us sins. Sometimes we suffer from other people's sins. Sometimes we suffer from our own sins. Sometimes we just suffer from the effects of living in a sinful world. People get cancer. People have accidents. Bad things happen. But it's not God's fault. We, however, have participated in the whole sin thing. We like it. We want it. And yet, we complain when we suffer the consequences. God isn't suffering the consequences for his sin. But he created us knowing how much pain we would cause him because pain is not his enemy. Selfishness is his enemy. And because God is love, he couldn't just say, I don't want to pour out my love. You know, God is a triune God. He already had relationships. It's not selfish of him to want love. But you see, God didn't create us so that we, he would have somebody to love. I used to think that. You know, God made us because he wanted somebody to love. But no, well, somebody to love him in return. But no, God created us because God is love. And love wants to pour itself out on others that it can love. Love is who God is. He wanted to pour out his love. So he made us, not because he knew we were going to make him so happy, but because he wanted to love us, whether or not we, re we would accept it or reject it. Our value is measured in the light of that kind of love, a redemption a God who says, I'm up in heaven, and I'm not suffering, but I look down at, at earth and I see you suffering for your own sins. But heaven isn't heaven anymore to me. If I'm up here comfortable and you're down there suffering, I'd rather come down there and suffer with you because I can't bear to see you go through it alone. That's a God that you can trust with your life. God's love for us and our worth are revealed in two profound scriptural themes, creation and redemption. If you think of God creating Adam and Eve, these, you know, he, he makes mud first, then he makes a little person out of mud, then he breathes into this perso person the breath of life and says, wow, you are worth more to me than this whole universe that I rule. I will give it all up to die in your place. What kind of love is that? When we meditate on creation, we understand God's love for us. When we meditate on redemption, that even after we had sinned, God still saw us as of infinite worth. Adam and Eve were worth so much before they sinned. But you could say, well, look, you guys are getting what you deserve. I'll leave you down there on the planet and let all the universe watch and see what happens with selfishness, and it'll be a good experiment. 
And after they see you guys destroy each other and they see what sin is like, they'll all unanimously vote, let's not have that again. Nobody wants selfishness on this universe again. And God's experiment is finished. We got what we deserved. Everything's good, right? The universe is clean because everybody saw out there, man, selfishness is awful. Sin is bad. We don't want it. But God can't do that because God is love. So he came down to buy back those who had sinned against him. Our worth is in no way damaged by that sin that we commit. You know, the devil tells you you've sinned. You're not worth as much in God's eyes anymore. God can't do as much with you. But God sees you and he says, wow, look at her. I died for her. You look at your hands. Look at your body. When you look in the mirror and you see acne and you see a mess and you just say, oh man, I wish that I had different hair. Realize what God sees. God sees you and goes, oh, she's beautiful. Look at her. Oh, how I love her. No one can ever understand how I love her. Creation and redemption show us God's love. And as we see his love for us and his worth for us, we stop needing it from all those things, those broken cisterns. See, as we drink deeply from the fountain of living water, our thirst is gone, and we look at broken cisterns and see them for what they are. Why would I want to drink from that slimy pond? God's Amazing Grace, page 246, says, The glory of God is to be revealed in the creation of man in God's image and in his redemption. One soul is of more value than a world. That's you. Think about that for a second. One soul, that is you, put your name in there. Nicole is of more value than a world. What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. This is what God wants you to spend time on in your devotional time. Don't just try to read through the Bible. Spend time meditating on, wow, what does it mean when God says he loves me? Meditation is simply dwelling on something until it becomes a part of how you think, how you live. What is an idol? We talked about a bunch of them earlier. That is by no means an exhaustive list. An idol is anything that rules my heart instead of God. Anything that I flee to for my comfort or satisfaction or sense of worth or identity or lovability instead of Christ. If you find yourself when you hit a downtime thinking, well, at least I have a really good job. At least I wear some decent clothes unlike other people. At least I help out at church unlike other people. These are things that you're falling into as idols. My sense of worth or identity. At least I'm a doctor. At least I'm whatever. No, no, no. You cannot do anything to add to your worth. And you cannot do anything to take away from your worth. You are already of infinite worth in the light of the cross because an infinite sacrifice was made for you. Now, what about issues like codependency? I have to hit on this because so many people who listen to a seminar, they're already steeped in this pre-made idea of, yes, but we all have psychological needs and issues, and those have to be dealt with by psychologists, right? I need to go and, and have somebody tell me how much I'm worth and that I'm really okay just the way I am. And um, the Bible doesn't say that. My counselor says I'm codependent. This is a classic one that I hear a lot. The outward issues are only symptoms. You can read this codependent no more and books like that, and they'll tell you all this stuff, and you'll go, wow, that totally describes me. But that's not going to give you a solution. Just because they know what the problem is doesn't mean they know what the solution is, because the solution 
is finding in Christ your sense of identity and worth. Once, if you don't do that, you're not going to find it in anything else. You'll get over this codependent relationship and you'll move on to a different addiction that may just make you feel better about yourself. You know, at least I'm addicted to going to church. And when I start feeling bad about myself, I think, man, I'm at church three times a week. What about all these other people? If anybody's on their way to heaven, it's me. No, that's not how the Bible works. Forget codependency. Codependency is just another word for idolatry. And God sets us free from idolatry in the same way that he set everybody through all of history free from idolatry. It's by the gospel. But a counselor who tells you, no, you just need to understand what you've been through and how sad it is that you've suffered all these things, that's not enough. It's, it's important to figure out where your sin issues come from, but only so you can get to the root of the sin issues and get the whole root out so the dandelion doesn't grow again, right? It's not kind or loving of a person to tell you that your sin problem isn't really sin, that it's just codependency, you know, it's just the way you were. Maybe it's just your family has always been this way. Maybe it's that you were abused, and so you're going to have to go to therapy all of your life in order to be able to deal with that. No, 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 no. Is that the Bible? The Bible says your problem is sin, and your solution is Christ. A counselor who tells you, you know, what if you went to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, you just got a rash on your arm there. You're like, well, are you sure? Yeah, it's just a rash. It's skin cancer. But he doesn't want to make you feel bad. He knows if he told you that skin cancer, you'd be really upset, wouldn't you? So he says, don't worry about it. Here, put this cream on it. It'll be all right. He doesn't want to break the bad news to you. God breaks the bad news to us. He says, that's sin. It's bad, it's ugly, and it's going to kill you. Let me cut it out. And that's not what we want to hear. No, no carnal person wants to ever hear that, but that's what God wants to tell us. Christ alone can satisfy that want, that sense of want in the human soul. His gracious invitation reaches down even to our time. From the fountain of life, the cry still goes forth to a lost world. Come unto me and drink. That's from the Review and Herald, February 28, 1882. No, but my problem is just low self-esteem. I've just been struggling with low self-esteem all my life. Um, no, your problem is sin and your solution is Christ. Amen. Low self-esteem is just another word for finding your sense of worth in what you do or what you, you don't do, you know, at least I'm like this. Low self-esteem, incidentally, is pretty much the same thing as high self-esteem. I've got another presentation that if you uh, are interested in the self-esteem issue, listen to I Love Me, I Love Me Not, parts one and two on Audioverse. Um, but the, the bottom line of that is that self-esteem, low self-esteem and high self-esteem really do not have that much difference. They're both basing your sense of identity on what other people think of you or what you think about yourself instead of on what God says about you. So people who have high self-esteem actually statistically can do very badly. Uh, people in prison have much higher self-esteem than average. Drug dealers have some of the highest self-esteem out there. They've, they've made a success in a very competitive environment. Why, aren't, why shouldn't they feel good about themselves? High self-esteem is uh, something that when I was a kid, we had another name for it. You know what we called high self-esteem? Pride. Pride. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, I want to talk about the, <clears throat> the cycle of addiction specifically in relationships, because this is where women tend to go. We can go to shopping and food and all those things, but we all tend to go to relationships. Men tend to go to respect. Women tend to go to love, right, as our foundational thing we feel like we need the most. 
Most men who have been damaged in childhood do not develop an addiction to relationships. They usually try to protect themselves and avoid their pain through pursuits which are more external than internal, more impersonal than personal. Their tendency is to become obsessed with work, sports, or hobbies. This is from the book Women Who Love Too Much, which I don't recommend because it uh, has a great description but no uh, biblical solutions. The woman's tendency, on the other hand, is to become obsessed with a relationship, perhaps with just such a damaged and distant man. Remember what we talked about yesterday? About people who desire relationship too much and people who protect themselves too much? They're both just sin. They're both just self-focus um, instead of God. I know that some of you may not be in an idolatrous relationship right now, but if you don't feed on the fountain of living water and the bread of life, you will fall into one kind or another of addiction. Sometimes women fall into the same things that men do, you know, at least my job, at least my clothes, at least my position. But it doesn't really matter. Whatever your addiction is, your solution is always Christ. I think it's important to realize don't lie to yourself. Have you heard of denial? Anybody ever heard denial is not a river in Egypt? Yeah, denial is called lying to yourself in the Bible. The Bible talks very clearly about denial. The Pharisees knew that Jesus was the Son of God, and yet they refused to believe it, right? When God confronts us, he wants us to go to the deep roots of what's going on in our lives. The person who manages to deny his pain behind a facade of togetherness is dangerously vulnerable to developing compulsively sinful habits because he's not dealing a death blow to the wrong strategies that block his enjoyment of the Lord. The unrecognized and largely unfelt ache in his soul still demands relief. He's ripe for being hooked. This is what happens when you are not founded on Christ. You will be ripe for being hooked by something. And you may think you're doing just fine, gliding along in life, but sometimes something is going to hit you. The, the devil knows where your weaknesses are. And if you aren't rooted in Christ, don't think that you can skate along just fine and nothing's going to happen. You've got to depend on him. Or one of these days something is going to just grab you and sweep you off your feet and you will be totally unprepared and unable to resist it because you're not founded on Christ. I know what I'm talking about and some of you know too. Lying to yourself is still lying. Lying is against the Ten Commandments. It's a sin and it will mess up your life. So when you go to God about the sin issues in your life, don't just say, Lord, please help me to stop cussing. Please help me to stop losing my temper. No, you got to go deeper. You say, Lord, what is it that I'm clinging to in my life? Is it a need for control that I need to surrender to you that makes me feel like I ought to have a right to do what I want to do? And if people won't do it, then I, get, or I have a right to be angry at them. No, no, no. You need to give that to Jesus. Don't just say, well, I've got a problem with being defensive, but that's the way we always were. No, you're defensive because you're not willing to let God defend you. You're not willing to let him take that position in your life. Addictions are undesirable behaviors that are usually the fruits of deeper sin issues. We crave glory, comfort, pain relief, or something else to satisfy the thirst that only God can quench. You know, we, uh, we had this huge tree in our backyard um, a couple of years ago. This thing was so big, I could wrap my arms around one side of it and not even make it around half of the tree. The thing was massive. 
and the, it was starting to die, and these, these branches were dying, so they were starting to fall down, and it, you know what they call branches like that, a dead branch that's hanging up there? They call it a widow maker. And uh, I didn't like that disturbing name, especially when my children were playing in the backyard. So we called our landlords and said, the tree in the backyard is having some real struggles. We'd like to uh, send it on its merry way. And so they hired the professional to come out there, and he cut all the leaves off the tree. Do you think that's what happened? No. 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 What are they going to do to that tree? They cut it down. This thing was massive. So they had to do it in layers, layers. And then when they got to the very bottom and it was down to a stump at ground level, then they took this thing out, the whatever you call it, stump grinder, and they went down under the ground and ground out the roots. You see, that's what God wants to do in our lives. I'm not going to promise you that if you just follow Christ, all the sin issues are going to be gone. Because God has this way of dealing with us gradually. Every morning when we spend time with him, he says, Nicole, this morning, there's something I need to talk about with you. Here's something that's going on in your heart that needs to go. And I go, Lord, I never realized that. I was demanding my husband do this for me, and you want to do it for me? I'm so sorry, Lord. Our motives are often impure. God wants us to continue that process of confronting evil motives. So he'll always be finding new roots, new sin issues that we didn't realize were there, and grinding them out. Not a pleasant process, but such a beautiful one. When God works in your heart, he doesn't weed your garden with a lawnmower. He gets the roots out. That's the God that we serve. He loves to minister to us. If you want to identify the broken cisterns in your life, I'm going to conclude here. Prayerfully evaluate. Where do you turn when you feel down? What satisfaction does that idol bring to you? You've got to know what, what are the root sins, not just the fruit sins. And second, rely on God's ability to satisfy the thirst of your heart. Believe it. He's promised it. Don't pray and then wait for the feeling before you believe that he's delivering you. He said he'll do it. He'll do it. He cannot lie. He's God. If he says it, it becomes true. Whatever God is going to do for your life, as long as your heart is fully surrendered, you're saying, Lord, give me your spirit. Show me where there's sin in my heart. He will. That's what he does. That's what love does. Let's bow our heads now as we pray, and I'm going to give you a break for a few minutes. Maybe we can open the doors and get a little fresh air in here. Thank you guys for hanging in there. I know it's getting hot in here and nobody slept enough last night, right? <laughs> Let's pray. Father in heaven, you're so gracious to us. You are love. Help us to believe in your love, to know your love, and to live for you and not ourselves. Lord, we pray that you will bless us as we finish this next seminar. Now we understand the deep-rooted issues that lead to the fruits in our lives that we don't want. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.